Today is Friday, December 20th, 2013, and I'd like to welcome you to this edition of Understanding the Law. Peter Lamont, I am a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast where we discuss a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. And if you would like to discuss any of today's topics or if you have separate legal questions, I encourage you to call at 347-855-8831 and you'll be put through to our switchboard and we'll try to get you on the air to answer your question. Well, um, today is a special edition of the show. Normally we broadcast on Thursdays. Today we're doing it on Friday. And today we are going to count down the top 20 questions that our offices across the country have received during 2013. And my hope here is to get through all 20 of them in the hour. We'll see what we can do. Um, but these are questions that have been uh, compiled uh, between our offices and put together into a list. And they are, again, the most uh, frequently asked questions by clients and by those people who are inquiring about general legal services. Um, you know, so it's, it's an interesting mix of questions. Uh, it's going to deal you know, with everything from procedural questions down to some more specific questions about uh, areas of law that our firm uh, practices in. So uh, before we get into that, I just want to um, everybody knows that this show is live. You can call in, you can ask your questions, you can uh, you know, discuss the topics, and we encourage that. We have a lot of interaction on our Facebook pages, and we appreciate that. We get a lot of questions in that we try to answer. Um, but it's always nice to get uh, some live callers who have some questions or comments about topics and you can call in to the switchboard. That number again is 347-855-8831. So let's get started. Uh, now, the first question, and this is uh, one of the most frequently asked. The first question is, I want to file a class action, but I'm told I can't. Why? Well, you know, class action law is, is very um, intricate. It's not something that you can just go and file a class action because, you know, you feel that uh, you and other consumers have been wronged. Uh, for the most part, what we see is class actions in the in the, the form of consumer-related um, issues. For example, one of the uh, the, the big topics this year, uh, one of the most frequently asked things that we received in the in the realm of class action law dealt with Author House, which is a book publishing company. It's a self-publishing service. It's uh, available online. And basically what they do is they sell you a package where they will agree to publish and promote your book. So we probably received well over 200 calls this year concerning Author House. And, uh, you know, we looked into the possibility of filing a class action and ultimately determined that it's uh, something that would be extremely difficult and not profitable, not just for the law firm, but for our clients. And so, you know, let me take five minutes and, and explain to you what a class action is. Uh, a class action is a lawsuit initiated by one or more individuals who all share a common set of, of facts. Um, there are requirements for class action that are, are beyond the, the requirements for a regular traditional lawsuit. You need to have a certain number of people that have been affected by very, very similar facts or, or circumstances. You know, in other words, if you have a company who is uh, doing something like what Author House was alleged of doing, which is taking money and then not following through. And it was the same set of facts and the same damages for everyone. You may, you know, there are other qualifying uh, factors, but you may be able to file a class action. 
what what we saw and why we turned down this case is because it wasn't one set of damages that were specific to the class as a whole. Everybody had their own individual damages. Some people didn't receive the um, marketing end of it. Some people didn't receive their book on time. Some people were charged more. And while these individuals most likely have individual claims, they did not have a class action. Courts look at class actions as a way of expediting legal process when the parties have the same claims, there's the same liability, and they all have the same damages. A class action that, that's viable would be one where you know, everybody purchases a gift card, and uh, the gift card's supposed to be $25, but it's only 20 so you've all lost $5. That would, in theory, make a viable class action. It's all the same set of facts, and it's all the same damages. So that's where you see class actions happening. So we got a lot of questions about, well, why aren't you filing a class action against Author House? You know, Author House as a whole damaged all these people. And our response was, yes, but if you look at the requirements of a class action, numerosity, and um, some of the other elements that I'm not going to get into because they become too technical, you just couldn't get a, a court to certify that class action. So that was, that was a question that we dealt with a lot this year. I want to file this class action. Why are you telling me I can't? Well, class action is not a simple lawsuit. You all need to have the same claims and the same damages. Uh, number two, got sued. I think I'm going to win. Now I want to get my attorney's fees back. Can I do that? This is a very, very common and interesting question all at the same time. So, you know, we've talked in the past on the show about lawsuits and the way that our legal system works. And unfortunately, as long as a, a person has a quote-unquote good faith basis, they believe that you've done something to them. They are entitled to file a lawsuit against you. Oftentimes, Especially with uh, the, the smaller or the lower courts, like the civil, civil parts, what we see is a lot of landlord-tenant disputes and that sort of thing, small breaches of contract between businesses. And the question is, is always asked, I've won or I'm going to win because I, I know that the plaintiff can't prove his or her case. I've had to hire an attorney. I want to get my money back. I want to get my attorney's fees back. And oftentimes, the response is, you can't. And people get outraged. Well, I don't understand this. I got sued for something that I did not do. We won. Why can't I get my attorney's fees? Well, you cannot blame the attorneys for that. You have to blame the legal system. I'll give you an example. We had a case that, uh, that we recently handled. Uh, one of our attorneys took it to trial and was successful. And it involved a dispute between two business people. And business person A owned a shipping business and sold it to business person B. Business person A did everything right, gave all of the documents showing what the prior year's sales were. And so it, it, it gave the the buyer of the business, a good opportunity to explore what they were getting themselves into. When they purchased the business, they ran it for about six months. They realized that they were not able to run a successful business. And ultimately, uh, she closed the business. But she was angry. She wanted money back, even though business person A, who was our client, did nothing wrong. As she wasn't a good person, and she decided that the way she would go about trying to get her money back was by suing him in civil court and also filing a criminal complaint against him for all these frivolous things. And unfortunately, the police uh, issued a warrant for, for probable cause, or they had a probable cause hearing, and they, uh, they accepted this complaint. So when our client came in to us and said, I was 
sued, and in addition, I've got this criminal complaint filed against me. We looked at it and we said, well, if the plaintiff or the state in this case were to win, you could go to jail. That's how serious these charges against you are. But we believe that we can defend them. And he said, yes, you know, uh, okay, we agreed to um, a, a payment term for our services, our fees, and we did a, a fair amount of work. We went to court, we had a trial, and, and we won. And he was acquitted. Now he comes back and he says, well, I was acquitted. I want my money back. And we say to him, no, you can't get your money. He doesn't understand that. Well, here's how it works. Just because you're sued and you win, you're not necessarily entitled to recoup your attorney's fees. It might not be fair, but that's the nature of the legal system. And that's why we tell our clients that, especially business owners, it's always better to be preemptive to spend your money up front, to set your business up properly, to make sure that all of your contracts and protections are in place because you can be sued and you want to limit your exposure and limit the length of time that you are stuck in, in, in a lawsuit. So, you know, there are certain circumstances when a, a defendant might be entitled to recoup attorney's fees, but it's very, very infrequent. For example... If there's a contract in place between you and the plaintiff, and the contract says that um, the party who wins in an arbitration or a lawsuit will be entitled to recoupment of attorney's fees, well, then you theoretically would be entitled to recoup your fees. Uh, if the case involves a statute that provides for the recoupment of attorney's fees, for example, consumer fraud, or perhaps a law against discrimination case, those are times where you may be entitled to fees. But for the most part, the general rule is that if you get sued and you have to pay a lawyer to defend you, that even if you win, you're not entitled to recoup your attorney's fees. It's a misconception. I think people get confused thinking, well, I didn't do anything wrong. But, you know, it happens very, very often where someone gets sued and let's say that the damages being sought after by the plaintiff are $100,000, and you have an attorney that you hire to defend you, and you've paid that attorney, let's say, $20,000 to defend you over the course of, of the case, and you win, and the plaintiff gets nothing, but you've paid $20,000, you can't get your money back. So while you've won, you still are out $20,000, and that's why being sued is not a good thing. And, and we'll talk in the coming year about ways to protect yourself as individuals and as business owners, ways to limit your exposure so that that doesn't happen to you. Uh, next question that we see a lot is, why are you recommending that I settle a case? Why does an attorney recommend that a case be settled? I know I'm right. I'm going to give you a perfect example of something that we just recently dealt with. Uh, this was a landlord-tenant case, and it involved a uh, landlord who was renting out uh, an illegal unit, okay? It wasn't zoned for, for rental purposes. And so they had a tenant in, and uh, after about a year, the tenant started having significant problems with leakage in the ceiling, and uh, the tenant would identify the problem and alert the owner about the issues. The owners did nothing. And so they continued to complain and eventually the owners got uh, frustrated and they decided that they were going to just terminate their tenancy and they Not only did they kick them out though, but they sued them for $8,000 worth of damage to the uh, interior of the unit. They have no proof. They have nothing to show that that is in fact they sued the tenant anyway. We represent the tenant. Tenant says, I did nothing wrong. We were very, very good to that unit. We made sure that we painted, that we fixed things when the landlord wouldn't. And I tell you that we left the unit in better condition than what we received it in. And now we're being sued for $8,000. This is not fair. I agree it's not fair. 
So we start litigating the case. And between our attorney's fees, and we gave a very, very steep discount to these people because we understand that they're residential clients. They don't have a tremendous amount of money, but they're entitled to, to very, very expert legal representation. It, it's not fair that, that an attorney would turn them away. So we, we gave it to them on a very reduced fee. Um, and after months and months of litigating, our bill was $2,000. Now, we were able to get through litigating and, and discovery and things like that. We were able to get the plaintiff, the tenant, to agree to reduce her, her demand from $8,000 all the way down to $2,000. So that's a pretty good uh, outcome, quite honestly. Now, we say to the client, listen, you've paid $2,000 in attorney's fees to us. We have got her to a point, the plaintiff, where she's willing to accept two. If you settle right now, you will have paid in total between fees and settlement $4,000. If you continue to litigate the case, the fees will continue to go up and we'll try the case because that's where it's headed. You don't know what a jury is going to do. But what I can tell you is that by the time we get through the trial, it's going to cost another two to $4,000 just because it's a trial. So we recommend that you settle the case. You can walk away with, with, with $4,000 and save yourself the money that you're going to, to spend on attorneys, not to mention what happens if a jury decides against you. And they couldn't understand that. We didn't do anything wrong. Why should we settle at all? And it's not an emotional decision that, that we asked them to make. It was a business decision that we asked them to make. And this is something that you have to be aware of when you're dealing with an attorney, when you're dealing with any sort of lawsuit. Okay, you have been wronged. You've been sued. You're upset. You know you didn't do anything wrong, but you're still being sued. And, and there's that emotional component to a lawsuit. It's happening to you. And that's why it's always better to hire an attorney to represent you, someone who can think outside of the emotion. You know, attorneys, good attorneys, they, they sympathize and empathize with their clients. And a lot of what their clients go through, they actually you know, take on themselves in an emotional sense. But having an attorney allows you to have an impartial, business-minded um, individual to look at the case and say, I understand you're upset and I understand you didn't do anything wrong. But let's look at this from a purely money standpoint. You will spend more money if you don't settle. But if you do settle, you're going to save and that's what we want to see our clients do. We want to see our clients save money, not continue to spend and litigate simply out of principle or passion or emotion. We want our clients to make good business decisions so that they can save money. That's why attorneys recommend, when appropriate, our offices. For example, we try cases. We're not afraid to try cases. We've tried hundreds of cases. And our track record for success is extremely high. But there are times when cases should be settled and not tried. It could be because of the risk of the unknown. You don't know what a jury is going to, to do. They might not like your client. They might not like the case. They might have no interest in being on the stand and therefore aren't going to give a, a, a fair shake. And if the attorney knows that or is aware of that, recommend settlement. If the financial burden of continuing on with the case is going to be too high, again, the attorney might, uh, might recommend settlement. So when you settle, if your attorney does it right, we always include a settlement agreement that has a clear denial of liability. So you're not admitting you did anything wrong. You're making a good business decision. In those cases that are not appropriate to try, we may recommend settlement, and, and we ask clients whether you reject the settlement case. 
what is a deposition? Oftentimes, <clears throat> clients will retain an attorney. The case is resolved prior to depositions, a lot of times with smaller cases. But with larger cases, generally in, in the courts, uh, the trial courts throughout the, the various states, depositions are a common part of the discovery process. And so oftentimes we get uh, clients who say, I don't understand, what is a deposition? I, I, I've seen it on TV, I don't know what it is. You know, if anybody uh, watched The Office when it was on, um, there was a, a funny episode where Michael Scott was being deposed in uh, his girlfriend's sexual harassment or, or discrimination case um, that she filed against Dunder Mifflin. And it was very funny because it, it gave you uh, this look at depositions with attorneys being very serious. And then, of course, you have Michael Scott. That sort of thing is what people see, and, and nobody really understands what it is. Well, here's what it is. It's part of the discovery process, right? And discovery is the exchange of information and documents so that both sides can prepare their case for trial. A deposition is a question and answer session. It is generally conducted in your attorney's office, another attorney's office, or sometimes in the courtroom. Uh, not the, the trial courtroom, but in a, in a room in the courthouse. What happens is that there is a witness. That's the person that's going to testify that day. There is the attorney who has requested the deposition, who will do the asking of the question. There are other attorneys uh, who may represent the witness and will be there to defend the deposition. There will also be a court reporter, a stenographer, someone who is going to take down verbatim, word for word, what's being said at that proceeding. Now, it is an informal proceeding in that it might occur at your attorney's office. And, you know, the attorney might be wearing uh, a shirt and a sweater and a suit. And, you know, you may not be dressed for court. And you're in the office, and you're drinking a cup of coffee, and, and you're answering questions. But that informal setting does, have, does not have any impact on what your testimony, the weight of your testimony. You know, in other words, the testimony that you give at a deposition has the same weight, the same force and effect as if you were testifying in front of a judge and a jury at trial. What you say in a deposition is testimony at trial. So what happens at a deposition? Well, the attorney who is called for the deposition will ask you a series of questions. And the rules in most states concerning what can be asked at a deposition are relatively, relatively liberal. That doesn't mean that all of the information obtained at the deposition is admissible at trial. But it does mean that you might answer the question. I'll give you a perfect example. In personal injury cases, especially injury cases involving a spouse, okay, so your wife is in a car accident. You sustained no damage. You weren't even in the car as, as the husband, but your wife was. And let's say she fractured her hip or, or pelvic bone and, uh, you know, has had a surgery and, and a long recovery. There is a claim that a spouse can file loss of consortium. Uh, and essentially what it is, is a claim where that spouse is looking for money for themselves because of loss of services. In other words, their wife was the homemaker and could no longer keep the house clean. But one of the areas that are often, and it's unbelievable, but it's often uh, alleged by the spouse is lack of, of sexual activity following an accident. So when you make that claim, you open yourself up to questions at a deposition. And, and it's unbelievable some of the things you'll hear, but oftentimes the spouse is deposed and the line of questioning, as perverse as it may seem, launches into sexual activity. How many times? What are you saying can't be done? I mean, it's, it's, it's 
funny in a sense, but it's also very realistic. You know, the attorney has to figure out whether or not your claim for loss of consortium is nonsense or not. And by making that claim, you open the door for that sort of questioning. So that's an example of, of what you might think is kind of unbelievable to be asked at a deposition, but it's asked. You know, oftentimes there's background questions asked as well. Are you married? How many children do you have? What's their names? What are their ages? And you might, as a witness, say, well, that's none of your business. But you have to answer the questions. And your attorney will direct you to do so. Depositions, um, the testimony that, that are given can last for half an hour. They can last for three days. At the end of your deposition, everything that was said, spoken between the parties, was captured by that court reporter, that stenographer, and it is put into a booklet called a transcript that can be used at the time of trial or throughout the case. Um, and what you say is on the record, same value, if you will, at trial. So that's, that's what a deposition is. Question five. What is a contingency fee, and why won't you, as the attorney, accept my case on contingency? Well, a contingency fee means that an attorney will not take attorney's fees unless they are successful in resolving your case. Now, there's a distinction here between attorney's fees and costs. Regardless of what attorney's ad you see on TV, plaintiff's attorneys all advertise that they will not take any money unless they recover for you. But look closely at what they're saying. They say, no attorney's fees unless we recover. What they don't say is, you are responsible for the costs of your litigation. If I have to take a deposition, you have to pay for it. I'm not taking attorney's fees, but I am making you pay costs. If the attorney has to file the lawsuit and it costs them $400 to file in federal court, that expense is passed on to you. That is something that you have to be aware of when you're hiring. With a contingency fee is that attorneys permit contingency fees when they take a case that they believe they can recover on. Look, a lot of people hate lawyers. There are a lot of lawyers that I don't like. I think that what they do is wrong. But the bottom line here is that whether you like lawyers or not, there are good lawyers who try to protect their clients. And they hold themselves up to, to a high standard. Those lawyers provide services, time, effort, advice, skill, and they deserve to be paid for what they've done. You know, it's no different than really going into a doctor's office and, and you know, paying your copay and getting a prescription. You know, many people complain about waiting three hours in a doctor's office, but you do it. And you would not expect not to pay your doctor or not to pay your accountant or not to pay your car loan. But oftentimes people think that they don't or should not pay an attorney because they have in their mind this idea of all attorneys should work on a contingency. But that's not really possible in all circumstances. Contingency fees are generally taken on personal injury cases or collection cases where the attorney has some reasonable belief that they'll be able to cover their time with an award at the conclusion of the case. So personal injury cases, for, for example, you're in a car accident and you have a fracture. An attorney can kind of value what that fracture is worth. And let's say they say that the value of your case is $100,000. That's the typical value for this sort of fracture. They know that they'll be able to recover something between, let's say, 25000 and 100000 So they know that the time that they put in, there'll be some 
recovery if they take the case on a contingency basis. And then they make that decision. Now, conversely, a breach of contract case or something where the damages are not clear or you know, you want to stop somebody from doing something. Uh, say it's, it's a family law case. You are disputing the terms of, uh, of, of your custody and your visitation and, you know, your child support. There is no recovery that an attorney can take fees from. It's not like a car accident case. So an attorney can't take that sort of case on a contingency basis because attorneys have staff and other attorneys at the firm, and we've got to be able to cover those costs. So that's why you can't have every case accepted on a contingency basis. And I understand, you know, people get angry. Well, you know, other lawyers say they do it, but you have to look at the specific set of facts where cases are taken on a contingency basis. Okay, number six, why won't the lawyer take my case? How many times we've heard it this year? Oh, it's a great case. I'm going to sue this one or that one or this entity. Why won't you take the case? Well, very simply, cases are analyzed by an attorney to determine A, liability, right? Who is at fault? And B, what are the damages? Or are there any damages? So you can have a case where somebody has done something wrong to you. Let's say somebody rear-ends you, car accident, but you don't suffer any injuries, and there's minimal damage to your car. Well, liability is in your favor. The person that rear-ended you is wrong. They're at fault. They're bad. No question but you don't have any damages. You're not going to have a successful lawsuit. Now, let's say the reverse. You have, you know, tremendous damages. You fractured your neck, but the accident wasn't caused by the negligence of another driver. And there's a whole host of circumstances where that might apply, but you don't have liability. You can't prove Therefore, even though you have significant damages, you're unable to have a successful case. So a lawyer will look at both liability and damages and analyze whether or not they believe that there is recovery there that's possible. Oftentimes, you know, you might have a case where you think you've been wrong, but the law doesn't support your claims. And therefore, an attorney will say, listen, we don't think we can prove liability. And even though you've got damages, it's just, you know, it can't be done. And they pass on it. When an attorney takes a case, it's an investment in you and your case. You know, you have to trust the attorney just as much as the attorney has to trust you and and decide how it will be, uh, you know, resolved favorably, but to cover expenses and that sort of thing. So a lawyer's not going to take a case if they don't think that they can recover. Next question, number seven, uh, what is bankruptcy? Bankruptcy is a set of laws that allow certain debts to be discharged or erased. With a lot of people that have come in corporate and residential or, or, or um, consumer clients who come in and say, I've got these bills, I can't pay them, can I file bankruptcy? I don't see why not. Everything I read suggests I can. It's not that simple. Bankruptcy is a procedure where you can have debt erased, but in order to have the debt erased, it has to be a certain type of debt. In other words, it has to be dischargeable, and each state has a separate set of laws concerning what is dischargeable and what is exempt for that state. Federal law also dictates. So, for example, if you have a lot of tax debt to the IRS or to the state, 
that's not dischargeable. Or if you have a student loan, that's not dischargeable. In other words, you cannot file bankruptcy and make the student loan go away. But let's say you have $30,000 in unsecured consumer credit cards. Well, that you might be able to discharge. But it's still not that simple. There's something called the means test, M-E-A-N-S. And there's a calculation that's done to determine your debt-to-income ratio and whether or not you qualify for bankruptcy. Then if you do, the next question is, what's dischargeable? Now, if you file bankruptcy and you um, meet all of the criteria, your debt will be wiped out. You know, all of the applicable debt will be eliminated. You don't have to pay it, ever. If you have a judgment or a lien or a wage garnishment in place against you, you file bankruptcy and a stay, S-T-A-Y, of litigation is put into effect, meaning that the, uh, the creditors cannot come after you. They cannot garnish your wages. They cannot uh, seize assets. Ultimately, you know, the court will decide, and if they agree with what your submissions are, uh, they'll discharge your debt, and then that all goes away. One note uh, is that it is extremely important when filing bankruptcy for the client to be extremely honest and transparent with the attorney. Here is why. The Department of Justice looks into questionable bankruptcy filings. And they will, the client could theoretically be brought up for charges for fraud on a bankruptcy petition. Any of the um, you know, reality television fans out there, uh, anybody who watches The Real Housewives of New Jersey is aware of uh, you know, Teresa and Joe Judice and their legal problems. What is alleged to be fraud in, in their bankruptcy petition? Now, these are serious charges. You can do jail time for this. Uh, we had a client recently who was not honest with us about all of their income. And when the trustee looked at the application and then questioned the client, something didn't make sense, they submitted it to the Department of Justice. Now, ultimately, we were able to help our client out of the situation and, quite honestly, get them discharged in bankruptcy. But my point is that honesty is an, a necessity when dealing with bankruptcy. Um, all right, we're on question eight, and we have roughly... 20 minutes or so to go. So I'm going to try to pick up the pace a bit. Um, but if we don't make it, we'll postpone the balance of the list until next time. Uh, number eight, do I need a real estate attorney? Simple answer, yes. Why do I need a real estate attorney? No, it might seem like a simple thing. Find a house, I'm going to buy it. It's not. You know, you get a sales contract that has to be negotiated and looked at to make sure that the right contingency clauses are in place that in the event that you conduct a home inspection and there's major issues with the house that you didn't see during your walkthroughs you need to be able to get out of that sale you know you need to be able to have the ability to walk away if there's high levels of radon or asbestos in the property or a whole host of other things that you might not be aware of as a as a purchaser if you look at successful real estate, uh, commercial or, or corporate real estate transactions, they all have attorneys. Even though these are really large you know, entities that are selling and buying property all the time. Why? Because they want the protection that attorneys can afford. So if you're buying a house, first time home buyer, you've got three houses, it makes no difference. Have an attorney. They'll review the contracts. They'll make sure that the protections are in place. They'll go to the closing with you. Oftentimes, an attorney can help facilitate the sale of a house that you as the purchaser might not have been able to make happen. Oil tank remediation, other issues with the house. You know, an attorney can help you through that. So, simple answer. Yes. Most attorneys will take flat fees 
or you know relatively low fees on residential closings that come out at the time of the closing. So you don't have to put up the money to the attorney. It comes out of the closing costs. Number nine, why can't I get a straight answer when I ask an attorney if I have a good case? Well, this is, this is a tough one uh, to get through in a, in a short period of time, but I'm going to give you the abbreviated version. Every case is different. Facts of a case are different across the board. And an attorney has to analyze the facts of the case and then apply the facts of the case to the law. And the law is not black or white. It's not evolving. And it's the, the way that the facts work with the law and how these are presented to a jury. There are so many variables in a case. Will a jury like what we present? Will a jury like our client? Will they decide fairly? Do the facts and the law support one another? What if this happens? Is it going to change the outcome of the case? So there are so many variables that go into deciding whether or not you have a quote-unquote good case that an attorney cannot, it's impossible for an attorney to say, you're going to recover and you'll recover between forty-five dollars and $50,000, guaranteed. Impossible. If an attorney tells you that, run, because it's the wrong attorney. An attorney can give you a range of, especially in personal injury cases, what your case may be worth. It could be worth twenty-five dollars to $75,000. That's okay. They're looking at jury verdict. Uh, reports and they're saying based upon the jury verdicts of past cases with similar facts here's what a jury awards but an attorney cannot give you a definite so it's not that they're being elusive or trying to avoid giving you a straight answer we can't we don't know how the facts and the law will play out as a case moves to trial number 10 what is a counterclaim well if you are sued and you believe that you have a claim against the per uh, person suing you, against the plaintiff. For example, uh, somebody sues you for breach of contract on a small business matter, um, but you didn't feel that you breached the contract because you know, ultimately what happened was they shipped you goods you didn't pay for, you refused because they were damaged, and you sent them back. And yet that company sues you for breach of contract. Well, you have a claim there. You have a claim against them because they sent you non-conforming goods. They sent you defective product. You can sue them back. And it's done in the form of a counterclaim. So a counterclaim is a lawsuit against the party suing you, but it's all within the same case. So you would be the defendant, and plaintiff on the counterclaim. Number 11, what is a judgment? Now, this is a common question. A judgment is essentially an award of damages in a specific amount that is awarded either through default, meaning you were served with a complaint that you did not answer, and the other side gets what's called a default judgment, or you lose at trial, or you violate a settlement agreement, ultimately the court issues an award of money against you. Judgments in most states have a life of 20 years. What does that mean? Well, that means that if I obtain a judgment against you, I can try to collect on that judgment for 20 years. And there's a process that I go through to verify your bank account information and to try to garnish your wages and seize assets. And I can do that for 20 years. How do you avoid a judgment? When you get served with a lawsuit, do not try to handle it yourself. Get an attorney. An attorney can protect you. Most often, Judgments that are received by, you know, consumers, residential, uh, private, personal law clients 
are a result of sticking your head in the sand. Well, I got this complaint in the mail. I don't know what to do. And you bear and it comes back. Prime example. We had a, a client who came to us who had been sued last year as a result of a motor vehicle accident. They did nothing. They buried it. They stuck their head in the sand. They didn't want to deal with it. Now, a year later, they come in and they say, remember that lawsuit that I, that I had? And I didn't want to do anything with it. Well, now there's a judgment against me. And because the state of New Jersey allows for it, because it was an automobile case, his license has been suspended until he pays $7,000 of, of this judgment. All could have been prevented if action had been taken by the client and he had retained us to defend him in the lawsuit. So now, if he gets pulled over while operating his vehicle, there's a good chance he could go to jail. Judgment is something to take serious, seriously, I should say, and you avoid it by getting an attorney as soon as you get sued. All right, next, number 12, how long does a case, a case take? We can give you a range as attorneys. Depends on the nature of the case. Depends on what court it's filed in. Cases can range from, you know, uh, a simple three-month lower court case to a two, three-year trial court level case. We've, we've had cases in New York that have been ongoing for four years. We've had cases that have ended in, in three weeks. It really depends on the nature of the case, the dollar amount being sought, the complexity of the issues. You know, a personal injury case typically has a, a lifespan of, of one to two years. Also depends on the congestion of the court system. We have a case in New York. Case was completed, personal injury case, we're defending, a year and a half. And that's now been three years. So we finished the case in a year and a half, all ready to go. But because of court congestion, we're not going to try the case for probably another few months. And ultimately, you know, years go by and, and you know, what have you. But there's no way of, of giving a straight answer on that. It all depends on a variety of factors. All right, number 13, what is discovery? Well, I touched on it earlier, so I'm just going to breeze through it. Discovery is the process where parties exchange information, verbal or oral testimony, written documentation, and its, its purpose is so that no one is surprised at trial. There's no Perry Mason aha smoking gun moment in today's trials. Parties have a right to see what the other party has, what they're going to rely upon to either defend or uh, prosecute their case. Discovery lasts a certain period of time. It depends on your state. It depends on what court you're in. That determines how long the discovery process is. Number 14, can I sue a municipal entity? Can I sue the police department? Can I sue the school board? Can I sue the town? Questions that we get nearly every day. The answer to this is yes. Simply because it is a municipality does not mean that you cannot sue them. But, and this is a very, very big but, municipalities and public entities have various immunities provided to them through state statutes. There are also other requirements when suing a municipal entity. In New Jersey, for example, before you can sue a municipal entity, you must serve what's called a no-tort claim on the entity, and then you cannot proceed with a lawsuit until a six-month time period has elapsed. And, and the purpose of it is to give the municipal entity time to develop the defense of their case. Fair or unfair, it is what it is. You cannot file a lawsuit until six months after you serve your notice of tort claim. And if you don't file it within 90 days after the incident accrued, you could waive your rights to a suit. 
so the answer is yes, but I recommend taking a case on your own without an, uh, an attorney when you're going to sue a municipal entity. You will not be successful. You know, you already are at a disadvantage because of the immunities afforded to municipal entities. You need a lawyer who is experienced in that sort of litigation in order to, to help you. Uh, we're roughly about nine minutes left. We're at number 15. Do I need a business attorney? Yes. You know, I, I see so many people making mistakes by trying to do the legal work on their own when they are starting or growing a company. They think that they can go to a, uh, a local you know, uh, office supply store and get some forms, or they can use one of these online services that provide attorney uh, information like LegalZoom. You know, it's not going to protect you. Oftentimes, businesses don't want to spend the money on a lawyer. They'd rather put it towards something else. But what I tell my business clients is this. If you set up the proper protections at the beginning, you eliminate or greatly reduce the likelihood that you'll be sued. You would rather spend money up front, right? $2,500 up front to do contracts and various things versus not having the proper protections in place, and then having to pay a lawyer $60,000 after you've been sued. You definitely need a lawyer. The other thing that's important to note is that in most states, if you are a business owner and you are sued, you are not permitted to represent yourself in court. Business entity must be represented by an attorney. That's the law. Find yourself a lawyer that you can trust, that can go you know, the long haul with you through your business. It will pay off in the end, I promise you. Uh, number 16, why do I feel like all lawyers care about is money? Again, this goes back to what I said earlier. Lawyers provide a service. They protect your rights. They have training, years of training, expensive law school, and it costs a lot of money to handle a case. There are you know, attorneys that are working on the file. There's, their time is valuable. And again, whether you like attorneys or not, and I understand those of you that don't like attorneys, it's a service provided. It's an expertise provided. And attorneys, it's a job. We, we need to make money the same way that doctors and, and accountants and retail workers, that's just the nature of our society. Lawyers, some of them do, and, and, but this goes for every profession. There are those people that are greedy and selfish. It's the car industry. It's you know, business. It's lawyers. It's accountants. And those are bad people. Profession. You need to find the right lawyer because I can tell you, our cares more about the people we deal with than the money that we bring in. And that is evidenced by the number of pro bono cases we take, the way that we, we work out payment arrangements with people. You know, and I'm not tooting our own horn, but I'm telling you that you can find the right attorney who's willing to give you what you need. So, no, lawyers don't care only about money. The bad ones do, the ones, but, but there's bad people everywhere. You can't group a whole profession. Number 17, what happens if I don't answer a complaint? Well, again, we talked about this briefly when we talked about a judgment. If you don't answer a complaint, a judgment will be entered against you. That judgment needs to go through some additional procedures, but ultimately a judgment could be entered against you in the amount of, of the claim. You must answer the complaint. You must get an attorney to help you. Number 18, how do I select an attorney? An attorney is somebody that you are comfortable with. You need to trust them. You like them. To personally get along with that attorney. You know, you can't go to an attorney who has a great reputation if you hate the person. Because Working with an attorney is collaborative. Our approach at our firms, I mean, we work as a team with you. If you don't like us, what kind of team member are you going to be? Not a good one. And then we can't help you 
you know, to the, to the fullest extent possible. You must find an attorney who has a good reputation in the community, who has good client feedback, who is experienced in the area of law that your issue resides in, and then you must like them personally. You must be able to engage them on a personal level and, and, and feel that they care about you. That's how you select an attorney. Not because Uncle Mort said, oh, I got this guy who's really good. You need to find it for yourself. All right, 19, almost done here. 19, what is a subpoena? A subpoena is a legal document that is issued by a court or an attorney that forces or requires the recipient of the document to do something, produce documents, or appear for a deposition. Subpoenas are enforced by the court. If you fail to respond to a subpoena, the issuing party can go to the court and say, I sent a subpoena, this guy didn't respond, ultimately judge, issue an order to hold them in contempt of court, which could result in their arrest. And finally, number 20, what is a jury trial? You know, people see it on TV, they think they understand it, but we get a lot of questions about what is a jury trial. A jury trial is a trial at the conclusion of your case where you are going to present your facts and evidence to a jury of your peers. But let's be realistic for a second. Juries, for the most part, consist of at least half of the people not wanting to be there. They're missing time from work. They're missing time from their families. They don't want to be there. They're not necessarily going to decide fairly. Is it wrong? Yes. Is it true? Yes. A jury trial is, it can be a day, it can be five days, it can be three weeks, depending upon the facts. Your lawyer puts witnesses on the stand, questions and cross-examines other witnesses, and ultimately appeals to the jury to decide the case one way or the other. Sometimes jury decisions are appealable. Most of the time they're not. So, you know, jury trials are complex. There's something that can, can, you know, take a lot of skill. You need a lawyer who is a trial attorney, well-versed in trying cases in order to be successful. Well, that's the end of our list. Those are the top 20 legal questions that we've received in 2013. I want to thank you for uh, joining us every week and uh, for your participation and the questions that you send in. Uh, We'll be back uh, in the new year. This is going to be the last broadcast of 2013. We'll be back in the new year with um, some updated formats. Uh, We're going to be launching a specific Facebook page in addition to the website page for the show. We're going to be bringing back some guests, and we're going to be looking for some new guests and uh, continue to provide you with legal updates on a weekly basis and uh, you know taking questions and answering your emails and Facebook posts. So again, thank you for joining me. We'll be back. Uh, if you have any questions in the meantime about this broadcast or any legal issue that you'd like to discuss, I'm going to give you our office number, and that's 973-949-3770. Or you can email us at info, I-N-F-O, at Peter Lamont. That's P-E-T-E-R-L-A-M-O-N-T-E-S-Q dot com. We will answer your questions. We encourage you to ask questions. You know, we think it's very important to explain the mystery, if you will, of the legal profession to our listeners. So thank you again. We wish you the best uh, for the upcoming holidays and in the new year. Back in 2014. and and hopefully make it an exciting year. So thank you again. Uh, Happy holidays. The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile. And there's a whole lot to love, like taking those perfect new year, new you portrait mode selfies you're going to share. 
Nice. It's the best way to stay connected to everyone you'll heart most in 2019. So get ready to fall in love with iPhone XR on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE to learn more or visit a store today. 